According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Hebrews. Are we still in chapter 3? We're still in chapter 3. Headed towards the end of chapter 3. Verses, uh, really, 16, 17, 18 all say the same thing. And uh, so we can speedily work our way through those verses. Um, But the warning is serious. The warning is absolutely serious. When it says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. Right? So raise your hand. Say, this is me. (laughs) Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And this is a warning. And I can fall away. You can fall away. All right? Understand this warning for what it says. It does not say lose your salvation. It says fall away from the living God. And uh, people that get scared that think that apostasy means losing your salvation have a non-biblical definition of apostasy. All right? Nobody loses salvation. When you have eternal life, how long is that? Trick question. It's eternal. That's right. You can't lose it. If you can lose it, it's not eternal. If it's eternal, you can't lose it. By definition... To lose salvation means Jesus Christ has to let you go. And it's the will of God the Father that He not let you go. For you to lose your salvation means that Jesus looks at you and says, well, I'm just going to throw this person away. And God the Father says, no. It's the will of the Father that He lose not even one. All right? And so to think your way through, to think your way through. I don't know what your favorite eternal security passages are. Do you have a favorite? I'm going to pray here in a moment. But my favorite eternal security passage is that one in John 10 that says, you know, the Father holds you in His hand, I hold you in my hand. You have to get out of two omnipotent hands to lose your salvation. That's just not going to happen. And for Jesus to disobey the Father by throwing you away, that's not going to happen either. When has Jesus ever disobeyed the Father? See, if Jesus would have disobeyed the Father, He wouldn't have gone to the cross. (laughs) You know, if He was able to disobey the Father... He wouldn't have given you that salvation in the first place. And He saved you knowing the dumb things you're going to do down the road. So He's not throwing it all away. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. All right. So as we go through this warning, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Let's understand, that's not a warning about losing salvation. That's a warning about falling away from the living God, losing our fellowship, losing our priesthood uh, applications losing our service. And that's a sad, sad state of affairs. So let's open the word of prayer and uh, return to what we've been dealing with. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, it is marvelous. It is wonderful. The half has not been told, the quarter, the 10%, the 1%. We have such a tiny fraction of, uh, of truth Yes, we have 66 books. Yes, we have a complete canon of Scripture, a Bible that seems so infinite and uh, exhaustive, and yet it's only a taste. The blessings we have in Christ are a a down payment, a taste for the glories that are yet to be revealed, glories that, uh, that Chuck has entered into, glories that many of our loved ones are presently seeing. But for those of us that are still here, Father, we walk by faith and not by sight, and we continue to 
Walk by faith this morning, calling upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Give us an understanding of this truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so last week we went through verse 12, which is this warning. And uh, we understand when it talks about an evil, unbelieving heart, that a person can believe in some aspect while retaining an unbelief that he needs help with. That uh, when uh, the man in Mark 9 says, I do believe, help my unbelief, that's a powerful passage that I claim every day that we all can claim that, yes, we are believers, we do walk by faith, but there may still be particular tests where our faith struggles. Or maybe there's certain people uh, in people testing, and our faith struggles with certain people. Or maybe there's uh, circumstances or localities or whatever realm, and we might be strong in one area and totally weak in this other area. That's why it's helpful if we have a helpmate, a spouse that has corresponding uh, opposite strengths and weaknesses so that in areas where I'm weak, she can be strong or where she's weak, I can be strong. All right. And so you can believe in some aspect while retaining an unbelief in other aspects. And so when it says uh, at your heart that there not been any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, that doesn't mean that you're no longer a believer in Jesus Christ or that you no longer have uh, belief unto eternal life. You are saved, but you do at the same time have an evil, unbelieving heart, and that's got to be dealt with. That has to be taken off now and uh, put, to put off the old man, put on the new man, as we were talking about last week. Um, and we'll see when we get down to verse 19 that unbelief is the basis for why they were not able to enter. It's the failure of the Exodus generation to enter into rest. Now, if you missed last week, go get the MP3, because I'm going to give you a 30-second recap, and that's not fair. You've got to listen to the whole hour of last week. The new heart we receive in Christ, you realize that? You got saved, you got a new heart, but it didn't do anything to your old heart. Your old heart's still there. Your old heart was not eradicated. And so uh, you still have it. The new heart we received in Christ does not eradicate the old heart we had in Adam. So we have daily volitional choices. Which, which heart are we going to put on? Which coat are we going to put on? Uh, uh, that, that old heart of carnality again or darkness? Or are we going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to his lust? It is a daily volitional choice. And I would encourage you, Romans thirteen fourteen, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Colossians 3, they all speak about what we put on, what we take off and what we put on. And that old nature, we're supposed to take it off. And if you find yourself wearing it again, uh, that's because we sin before we know it sometimes. And we find that oftentimes it's attitudinal, it's mental attitude sin. And a lot of times it's that eagerness to sin that before we even realize it, we've fallen back in that old way of thinking again, that old attitude again. The Apostle Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? He testified to that. He says, in my flesh dwells a no good thing. And that's true for all of us. That it was not eradicated when you get saved. Somebody might have told you that they lied or they were biblically misinformed. All right. Um, nobody is, is sinless after their salvation. We still have that sinful nature. And so it becomes that battle. What are we going to put on today? What are we going to put on? And uh, the absence there. So the presence of an evil, unbelieving heart does not indicate a loss of salvation. It indicates per, a person that is not dead yet, <laughs> right? Because I tell you, Chuck went to glory, but he left his body in Georgetown. 
He left His sin nature on this earth. And uh, that's the only way, through physical death or rapture, that we're going to be freed from the body of this death. All right? So, uh, the presence of an evil, unbelieving heart does not indicate a loss of salvation. What is apostasy? What is falling away? Falling away is a departure from God's living presence. God's living presence. We're supposed to walk in the newness of life. We're supposed to walk in His presence. In other words, a lack of fellowship. You're out of fellowship. You're in carnality. It's also a departure from God's service. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. When you, when you, you're chucking faith out the window when you fall into apostasy. So apostasy is a departure from God's living presence. It's a departure from His service. And it's a departure from fellowship. Those three things. Now think about it. How many believers do you know are in apostasy today? Or think about, forget other believers, think about yourself. How many eras or or past moments of your life could be described on that basis? Where, uh, okay, you weren't in full-scale reversionistic rebellion, but you were getting there, right? You had more of a passive negative volition. It wasn't quite active and, 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 and virulent yet, but it was approaching that. That's what happens. It's an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from a living God. And so the emphasis I'm going to have to my deacons and to the flock throughout this year is going to be on, uh, on, a, on a re-energizing of that positive volition and a, and a re-energizing of, uh, of intimacy with the Lord. All right, so that's apostasy. If you have a different kind of apostasy, uh, you have the remnants of what developed in medieval Roman Catholic theology. You, you end up with uh, an external profession whereby somebody apostatized, somebody took a stand before a priest and renounced Christ and claimed uh, some kind of a, uh, an allegiance to Muhammad or an allegiance to atheism or to some other thing, and they were making an outright departure from Rome as a heretic, as an apostate, as uh, a renegade, or if you will, okay? Uh, so apostatizing was when you chose to do it. Excommunication is when Rome threw you out, right? So that's the difference. And all of that is Roman theology. It's not a biblical definition of apostasy. Apostasy is falling away from the faith, falling away from God's living presence, falling away from God's service, and falling away from God's fellowship. And the Bible says your sins have created a barrier between you and God. Well, guess what? You can deal with that. Confess your your sins, be restored to fellowship. And uh, we have our procedure there. All right, which gets us now to verse 13. We have an antidote to apostasy. In fact, it's an inoculation. Think of it as getting your, your shots up to date, on your apostasy shots up to date. And it's called mutual reciprocal encouragement. Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, right? So check your calendar and ask yourself, what day is this? It's today, right? Every day is today. And, And guess what? Tomorrow will be today when we get there. So understand that. Day after day, as long as it is called today. And so every morning when you wake up, it's a brand new today. And it's a brand new opportunity. So all those debates between the Saturday Sabbath people and the Sunday Lord's Day people that have raged for 2,000 years through church history still rages today. We still have Seventh-day Adventists today and other groups that, of, of Christians that, that meet on Saturday. They observe the Sabbath. They do different things. All right. 
All of that misses the point. Now, the book of Hebrews presents our Sabbath rest in the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ is today. It's not Saturday, it's not Sunday, it's today. It's day after day as long as it's called today, and the purpose for which is to encourage one another. One of the purposes, there are several purposes, but to encourage one another. And that's our duty, to encourage one another. And so we look at it here. I call it mutual reciprocal encouragement. It's one of these great one another imperatives of the New Testament. The all alone, the vocabulary is all alone, right? And it's, it's kind of humorous to me that all alone sounds like all alone in English. But if you're all alone, you can't do the all alone imperatives of the one another commands that the New Testament gives us. To me, that's just hysterical. And if you're not a language geek, you probably, well, you miss out on some of those dimensions of humor that uh, are otherwise available to you. Joe Hermit Christian living in a cave cannot encourage one another. He's not involved in a flock. He's not with an assembly. He doesn't have brothers and sisters he can come alongside and encourage. And he doesn't have brothers and sisters to come alongside and encourage him and to keep him from the apostasy that put him in that cave in the first place. All right? That's, uh, that's what it's about. Mutual reciprocal encouragement. It is defined in this passage here as the primary defense against personal apostasy. The best defense, the best inoculation, right? Sometimes you go get a flu shot and what happens first thing? You get the flu. And you wonder, why did I take this thing? And, and there's a certain percentage every year. They take the flu shot, they get the flu immediately. You think, wow, that was worth it. Um, here though, this is God's methodology, God's inoculation. Because it says, take care, but, right? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, not just you personally, but your brother, your sister, your enemy, all your friends in the church, any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another. That's designed as the antidote. That's designed as the antithesis. This is what will head it off. This is what will keep you from doing the uh, thing you're told not to do there in falling away in verse 2. So encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called, still called today, so that none of you, none of you, right? And this, this is very much similar to Paul's writings, why some people think Paul wrote Hebrews, but I think the author was adopting some of Paul's logical methodology. Paul would love to say, in nothing do this, but in everything do that, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. Paul was very famous for his in nothing, in everything kind of contrast. Same thing happens here. Any one of you, and then none of you, so that not one of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. None of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So if there's not any one of you in verse 12, and then there's not one of you in verse 13, guess what? (laughs) Put those verses together. They're designed to go together. That's a match right there. Okay, That's a tandem. That's a tandem. And so we have the antidote. We have the primary defense against personal apostasy. It's going to come back again, by the way, in, uh, in chapter 10. The need for mutual reciprocal encouragement. Hebrews 10.25. And uh, backing up slightly. 
In Hebrews 10, we have, verse 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. Confidence. We belong there. You ever walk into a place that you belong and you know you belong? Let me rephrase that. You ever walk into a place you don't belong and you know you don't belong? And you just know that any moment they're going to catch you and throw you out because you have no business being there. All right, don't tell me now. Just That's between you and the Lord, okay? You, Jesus died for that sin. Don't worry about it. But now think about it. The, the, the holy place is not it. You know, the holy of holies, only the high priest could go into that one day a year. Other priests couldn't go in there. Levites couldn't go in there. Regular, you know, schmucks from other tribes couldn't go in there. Gentiles couldn't go in there. The only one that could go in there was the high priest. And that was just one day a year on the Day of Atonement with blood not his own. But here we go, all day, every day, day after day, as long as it's called today, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood not our own, but hey, it's ours now because we're in Christ. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. You know, for the high priest to go in there, an animal died. But Jesus died once and for all. Now he lives again and we walk in that newness of life. We offer living sacrifices the new and living way which is the, uh, through the veil, which is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So all the typology from the tabernacle. You ever study the tabernacle? All that typology with the silver laver and with the, the altar and all of that. The reality is us in Christ. That's our reality from our garments to our cleansing to our priesthood. And think about the intimacy of this priesthood. How fun is that? Jesus isn't just sitting in there by himself. We're in Christ. We're in him. So all of us, you, me, everybody, if you're born again in Christ, we enter within that veil that is his flesh. Assuming, of course, we haven't fallen into apostasy. We haven't fallen away from the living God. If we're cleansed, if the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin, we're in the Holy of Holies right now. Right here, right now. And so, now that we're in there, what do we do? What do we do? What did Aaron do when he went in there? What do the high priest do when he goes in there? Well, he goes in there and he spreads, he smears the blood on the mercy seat. This is his atonement action for the nation of Israel for the year. He smears the blood on the mercy seat. And then what does he do? He leaves. He's done. <laughs> All right. What do we do? Because remember, Jesus is our mercy seat. And that blood has been applied once and for all. It's not like a Catholic mass. We're going to keep killing him every time or keep. No, it's once and for all. And we go in there not to smear blood on a mercy seat that's already been applied. We go into a cleansed, pure, glorious, holy of holies. We go in there to rest. We go in there to worship. We go in there to encourage one another. And that's what we're doing here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Did I lose you yet? I'm still in the Hebrews 10. This is now verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's another way of saying don't fall into apostasy. Don't beware that there be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In other words, hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It's not your faithfulness, it's His faithfulness. If you think it all depends on you and your faithfulness, then you're going to blow it, you're going to lose heart, and then you're going to 
fall away from the living God because you thought all along that the process was all about your faithfulness. Forget that. It's His faithfulness. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. By the way, that's the form encouragement takes. Encouragement is not just wiping a nose and saying, oh, it'll be okay. Encouragement is a stimulation to advancing in the Christian way of life. Hey, get up, start walking again. Pursue your ministry. Exercise your gift, bear fruit. Get back on board the plan and program. Don't just sit there and pout. All right, there's no spiritual gift of pout. There's no ministry of pout. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the encouragement. See, and you notice again, it's a one another. Now, how many of you want to bail on that and say, well, (laughs) I studied spiritual gifts and there is a spiritual gift of encourager and that's not my gift, so I'm going to leave it to them. That's the same useless, stupid lie that people do with evangelism. They say, well, there's a gift of evangelist. That's not my gift, so I'm not going to evangelize. Wrong. Every believer has the responsibility to evangelize. Those with a gift are more empowered to do it, but all of us are expected to do it. Same thing with the encourage one another. It is a mutual reciprocal imperative. All of us encourage all of us. The ones who have the gift are going to be more empowered to do it, They're going to be a whole lot more empowered to do it, and they're going to have a ministry that's going to be centered in that. But that doesn't change the fact that we're all expected to do it. Okay? So now I've given you two examples. You can think your way through the other nine spiritual gifts. Say, well, I heard there was a gift of giving, and I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't have to give to my local church. Guess again. Okay? (laughs) Got to... Brand new treasurer now. He, he'll, he'll speak to you about that after, uh, after class today. Every believer should give. Every believer should evangelize. Every believer should, uh, hey, teach when called upon. Shepherd when called upon. Say, well, I'm not the gifted shepherd. Yeah, but you're expected to shepherd. You have a wife. You have children. You have younger believers nearby. All right. I believe all these functions... Yes, certain believers are empowered above and beyond other believers because of their giftedness, but that does not change that we all have these duties. We all have encouragement duties one to another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Okay? And by the way, um, I don't. I, I that's rapture doctrine in my mind. Okay, uh, a lot of people just simplify it and say, "Well, it means don't skip church." But I think it's uh, don't skip church is a given. Uh, if you're skipping church, you can't you can't obey one another imperative anyway. But uh, not forsaking our episunagoge, that's rapture doctrine. So uh, the best thing the best thing you can do when you're encouraging one another, when you're exhorting one another, when you're stimulating one another, loving good deeds, saying, hey, get up on your feet, get walking, get serving, remind them of the rapture. It could happen today. You know that trumpet could sound today, right? Are you bearing fruit today? Get going. So not forsaking rapture doctrine is as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. There it is. It's an imperative and it's all of us to, to all of us, from all of us to all of us. And then all the more 
as you see the day drawing near. What day? Rapture doctrine, see, in this context. If you, if you reject that as rapture doctrine and think it's just a kind of a generic quit, quit skipping church kind of verse, then you don't have a definition in context to tell you what that day is. Okay? But that day at the end of verse 25 has context for the episynagogue in the first part of verse 25. It's rapture doctrine. All right, mutual reciprocal encouragement is the primary defense against personal apostasy. Uh, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 10, Paul also conveyed this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. And what did he do to encourage them? Gave them rapture doctrine. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Rapture doctrine. Start with verse 13, take it down through verse 18. You got rapture doctrine, that whole paragraph. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, like Chuck Hagemeyer, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Boy, we're grieving. We're grieving this weekend. In the shock, we're grieving this weekend. We're going to keep on grieving. We're going to grieve some more tonight. We're going to grieve some more this week. We have a birthday party for Chuck on, on Saturday, and we're going to grieve then too. But not like the hopeless, godless unbelievers. They grieve without hope. We grieve in the living hope. What a joy. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. When, when the Lord descends with a shout, Chuck's going to be right there with him. My mother will be right there with him. Mike Snyder right there with him. Think about everyone that's gone before, right there with him. Can you believe the big old smile Chuck's going to have? He already had the biggest smile I'd ever seen in my life, but think about that smile. And uh, we who are alive and remain. So the dead in Christ rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. And then what does verse 18 say? Therefore comfort one another with these words. It doesn't say a pastor, teacher, congregation, rapture doctrine. It says everybody, encourage everybody with these words. Every believer should be parakaleoing, encouraging, exhorting, comforting every other believer with rapture doctrine consistently. Likewise, chapter 5 and verse 11, there's another, uh, we cross from chapter 4 to chapter 5 and we add to the rapture material, second advent material, stuff we don't have to worry about because we're not like them. We are sons of light, not the sons of darkness. And so they're doing their thing, we're doing our thing, and God is such a God of grace. And we're going to live with Christ. And so it says in 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and edify, build up one another, just as you also are doing. It has nothing to do with a pastor. It doesn't say pastor teach Second Advent doctrine. It says everybody encourage one another with this doctrine. So, mutual reciprocal encouragement is the primary uh, defense against personal apostasy. We also have the emphasis on today. Each day that can be called today is a day for mutual reciprocal encouragement ministry. I think it's also a a day for intake. Give us this day, our daily bread. Matthew uh, 6.11 The emphasis is daily in the New Testament. Weekly in the Old Testament, from Sabbath to Sabbath to Sabbath, yes, they had morning and evening sacrifices, but 
That, that was the priesthood maintained all that while the people had week-to-week-to-week observances in their Sabbath observance. And, of course, here you and I are priests. We have a daily emphasis, and it's day after day. So we have our daily bread. We have our um, priestly function, our encouragement ministry. And think about it. Today may be the last day before that day. As you see that day approaching, you know, whenever the rapture comes, it's going to be today. It'll be the today that it is when it comes. So why not today? Whatever day it's going to be, it'll be that day on that day. It'll be today. So maybe today will be that day. Am I making sense? All right. I am off the antihistamines now that Cedar's basically over. So I no longer have that excuse. It's kind of sad. But think about it. When is that day coming? Could it be today? I know, to, I know it's closer than it was in 1973 when I got saved. Romans 13, 11. Do this, knowing the time. This is about uh, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And this is the call to love in Romans 13. Um, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. A whole lot nearer, right? How, how near? How much nearer? Well, I've been saved for 45 years now. Imagine that. September makes 45 years. And uh, it's nearer. I'm surprised we're still here, honestly. You know, a God less merciful than our God would have wiped us out a long time ago. And yet God is merciful and he wants none to perish and he's giving opportunity for the lost to come to faith in Christ. Good thing I'm not God. I'd have blasted, blasted a whole lot of people a long time ago. First Peter 4, 7. Probably would have blasted myself to start with and then that would have taken care of the problem. First Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. And this isn't some crazy guy with a sandwich sign walking the streets. This is God in the Bible telling us when the church age started, it was already the last days. The canon's not even complete yet. We're still in the first century. We're still in the first decades. Christ died in 32. This is written in 66, 65, 62, whatever. Lewis probably figured it out when he was teaching First Peter. But the end of all things is near. That was 2,000 years ago. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And keep above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. What are you complaining for? The trumpet's going to sound this afternoon. Quit griping about it. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. My gift isn't for me. My gift is for everybody but me. Your gift isn't for you. Your gift is for everybody but you. Whoever speaks, verse 11, whoever serves, classify our spiritual gifts that way. All right, James 5.8. Hebrews, James 5.8. I got that a little out of order, didn't I? James 5.8. Therefore, be patient, brethren. Verse 7 says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. 
The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Well, I can't wait that long, right? But God does. He wants us to be patient. But at the same time that we're patient, we have the sense of imminency because today can be the day. You too be patient, strengthening your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. You know, when Paul and Peter and James, when all the apostles, John, when all the apostles are giving the imminency principle, they expected it in their lifetime. It could have come in the first century. First uh, John 2.18 Everybody's all wrapped up about who do I think Antichrist is going to be? I don't care. I don't care. I won't be here to see him. Is he alive on earth today? I hope so. Because I hope we're that close. First John 2, there's other Antichrists we should be worried about. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So quit worrying about the big, ultimate, capital A Antichrist that will come in the tribulation, that will rule the world, and everything that he's going to do after the rapture of the church. Who cares? I just said it, after the rapture of the church. We won't be here. But, presently on this earth now, and have been since 1 John was written, many Antichrists have appeared. The entirety of the church age has been the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. <coughs> People say, do you, think you're in the, do you think we're in the end times? Yes. 1 John 2.18 says we've been in the end times since 1 John 2.18 was written. Okay, It's been the end times since Pentecost. Ultimately, the church age, can't imagine Pentecost and rapture on the same day, but conceivably, the bride of Christ had been completed on that day. Kind of a small bride. Anyway, we have hindsight working against us in a little bit because we got 2,000 years of of church history. What if we got 10,000 more years in front of us? When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, the church is still being completed and the church age is still unfolding on this earth. I don't believe that. But I can't prove that biblically because imminency, the rapture, can come anytime. So today may be the last day before that day. So today's a day for encouragement. Today's a day to remind one another to say, here, there, or in the air. You thought that's just because you have a goofy pastor. No. It's because reminding one another of rapture doctrine is the greatest encouragement to prevent against apostasy. And you have a goofy pastor. All right. <laughs> Thirdly, the hardening capacity of sin is centered in its deceitfulness. Now this one takes some time, and this one actually, this is far deeper than you'll imagine at first glance. This says a lot, and it says a lot we usually don't pay attention to. We think, what's the, what's the worst thing about sin? What's the worst thing about sin? That it, that it hurts? A lot of times sin feels good. What about, what's the worst thing about sin? Separates us from God, that's true. Sin um, removes glory from Christ, sin diminishes his glory. Sin is ugly for a lot of reasons. Sin has consequences. I'm going to hurt people with my sin. I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to hurt others. Okay, Husbands can hurt their marriage. They can hurt their family. Pastors can hurt their church. Presidents can hurt their nation. 
Um, but it's interesting, when it talks about the hardening capacity of sin, lest any one of you be hardened by what? Not the consequences of sin. Not the defilement of sin. Not the fill-in-the-blank anything else of sin. But the deceitfulness of sin. What hardens you is the deceitfulness of sin. How does sin lie to you? And that's what I think is, uh, is curious. That's what I think there's more verses that link the deceitfulness of sin than you realize at first glance. And I put them on the screen here for you. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who shall know it? Okay? And that's far worse than the heart is lasciviously motivational. The, the, the heart motivates you to lustful thoughts. The heart motivates you to ascetic thoughts. The lot, you know, think about the different sin temptations. Anger, murder, fornication, all these things. And so the heart can motivate those things, but that's not what hardens you. It's the deceitfulness of those things. It's the deceitfulness of the heart that convinces you that you can do those things and get away with it. Or that it's okay if you do those things. Or that it's a sin, but it's not as bad as other sins, so okay. Or, yeah, it's a sin, but, you know, you've done so much for the Lord, He'll, he'll let you slide. You know, those things only apply to the little people. See, you're a pastor. You can get away with that. No, 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 no. Okay? To whom much is given, much is required. And so if you're trying to claim a perk or a privilege, Jesus never claimed a perk or a privilege. He didn't walk the earth and say, hey, I can sin all I want because I'm sinless and perfect. All right? To whom much is given shall much be required. And of whom they entrusted more, they will expect the more. And so, but sin is deceitful, sin lies. The heart is deceitful, but all is desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. How about Romans 7, 11? That's crazy. Romans 7, 11. The Romans didn't have 7, 11. So, all right. Notice what it says. Sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. It's the deceitfulness of sin. And through it, killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. All right? Sin. You back up to verse 8. There's sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, coveting of every kind, Anyway, this is, this is the passage where he's wrestling over this, this sin thing, right? And he's just crying out. You get to the end of the chapter in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So the, the uh, deceitfulness of sin is what hardens. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul was concerned about the Corinthians that they were going to be deceived. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you. Betrothed? 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 Okay. I probably mispronounced that the whole time when I was teaching this in 2 Corinthians. I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. 
So he's, he's talking to the Corinthians like a dad would think about his daughter and preparing his daughter for, for marriage. And, and then he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. That's the big concern. You know, yeah, the sin, that's an issue, but what's worse than that is the deceitfulness of sin that's leading this girl away from following the Lord and bearing fruit and walking in the light and everything, the devotion to Christ that we're called to do. It's that deceitfulness of sin. Ephesians 4.22, we looked at last week when we talked about taking off and putting on, taking off and putting on, remember that? Ephesians 4.22, in reference to your former manner of self, of life, you lay aside the old self. Notice, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of what? The lust of deceit. The sin nature that lies to you is making itself stronger with every lie you swallow. With every uh, time that you don't put off, put off your sin nature, when you're convicted to confess and you choose not to because you're kind of having fun at the moment, you want to prolong the carnality and have just a little more, you know, whatever. And then you think, I'll confess it tonight. I'll confess it tomorrow because you're enjoying your sin at the moment. Mm -mm. The deceitfulness of sin is uh, corrupting. And you're supposed to lay aside that old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Finally then, James 1, 22 and 26. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. What is it that tells you that you can listen to doctrine and not live it out? What is it that, that convinces you? It's not the Holy Spirit telling you that. What is it that tells you that you can fill notebooks and get doctrine and, and learn the Word of God, but you don't have to apply it? You don't have to live it out. You don't have to do what the Bible says. You can be a hearer, not a doer. Who tells you you can do that? Your lying sin nature tells you you can do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell you you can do that. The Holy Spirit tells you, uh, learn it, then live it. And it's uh, deception. And we have deception there. Uh, who delude themselves. For any person is a hearer and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and he forgets. Once he has looked himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So we don't want to lie to ourselves. Get, uh, more deception in verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but de- he de- deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. All righty, well, there you have it. Lots of passages that will link together these things. Let's look at verse 14 and 15. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. So, take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another. Day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that not even one of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you notice your brother listening to those lies, encourage him. Say, hey, quit believing those lies. (laughs) Hey, trumpet could sound today. You want to get caught in carnality? Hey. And, and, you know, I love the fact that that Parakaleo has three translations. It has encourage, it has comfort, but it has exhortation as well. And sometimes we need that tougher encouragement, that tougher comfort. 
Sometimes the, the mamby-pamby light comfort does, doesn't do it. Okay? Pat you on the shoulder, wipe your nose. It'll be okay, it'll be okay. You know, well, yeah, it's going to be okay, but shape up. Confess that sin. Walk right. Get moving. You know, this is the uh, drill sergeants have a marvelous way to park a you. When you think uh, you're done running, they say, oh no, no, no. Those mean men in the brown hats, they get you running more than you think you can do. And we're called to do that, to parakaleo one another, day after day, as long as it's called a day, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think we are so rapture close right now, and our nation is on such an edge. Even if there is no rapture in our lifetime, our nation is on the edge of some something maybe terrible. So we better be ramping up our, our encouragement activity one to another. Or we're going to find ourselves in a place of persecution quicker than, uh, quicker than we realize. All right. And then there's an explanation, uh, a, a basis for which we do this. So, you know, to me, I can stop with 12 and 13 and be good with that. God told me to do it. Makes sense. I want to do it. Uh, the consequences of not doing it are unthinkable. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey 12 and 13, and I don't need the additional explanation. But he gives that additional explanation, which to me just makes it that much more intense and that much more vital. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So the warning the exhortation, and now the explanation that comes, the, the, the four, the, um, the reality of it here explained out. We have become partakers of Christ if, third class condition, maybe we do, maybe we don't. If we do, we become partakers, experiential partakers of Christ. Not positional partakers of Christ, but experiential partakers of Christ. So, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. Now, notice though, there's stages here. The beginning of our assurance, so there's a beginning stage, and then there's an ending stage, holding fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. See what I'm looking at there? So we've got the beginning, we've got the end, and then what do I have in between? Hold fast. Hold firm. All right? And we have actually an illustration here in this verse for phase one, phase two, phase three. We have an illustration here in this verse for positional justification, experiential justification, ultimate justification. We have, or what Chuck's going to teach tonight, what Chuck prepared to teach tonight, uh, the three modes of salvation in the form of saved from the uh, penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, saved from the presence of sin. Right here in this one verse. And so it's, uh, let me spell it out for you. Ooh, what did I do? I deleted my slideshow. Okay. That's all right. Let's show. All right. Ha. Understand positional. Let me, uh, before I do this, let me just draw a picture. That's what I was going to do. Okay. Let 
Remember when you got saved? When somebody told you about the cross, somebody told you about eternal life, and you didn't want to go to hell when you died? Remember that? All right. And none of us went to heaven on the spot. We didn't believe in Jesus Christ and immediately get caught up into the third heaven. I know that because I'm looking at you. We're still here. There is a Christian way of life that leads to the crown. After church, you can compliment my artwork. Now, between the cross and the crown. The point is, we don't know when this is going to be. Chuck didn't know when we saw him Wednesday night that that was our last time to see him. None of us knows. It could be today. Could be whatever. It's definitely before, I've already promised everybody, it's before next January. But whatever it is, if there's a big round birthday number you don't want to get to, then you can hope for rapture prior to that. But we don't know. The point is, from the cross to the crown, we have a Christian walk. And in the process of that Christian walk, this is where we're warned not to fall away from the living God. This is where we're warned against apostasy. This is where, on an experiential basis, we have dangers and snares. And so we call this positional. Positional justification, positional sanctification, positional salvation, positional you name it. A lot of themes that can be, that have this concept can all be rendered there as positional. So you got saved, you were baptized in union with Christ, you now have the position of Christ being in Christ. So you have his justification, his sanctification, his salvation, his inheritance, his everything. Everything that's a part of your position in Christ happens right there at the moment you come to the cross, at the moment you become saved. Then we start to have our experience. And it's through experience then that we talk about experiential justification, whereby it's not faith only, but it's faith and works, okay, in the book of James. We have experiential justification. We have experiential sanctification. We have experiential fill-in-the-blank. Much of what we have is experiential Apostasy is an experiential reality, not positional. Never has been, never will be, not biblically. And then we have ultimate. Positional, experiential, and ultimate. And that's where we're headed. We're all headed there. Ultimate justification, ultimate sanctification, ultimate salvation. A salvation that is ready to be revealed. Uh, salvation which is nearer to us than when we believed. Salvation that, that is our leaving the presence of sin and being in the personal presence and glory of Jesus Christ. And so that's, those are the three phases, okay? Let me even draw that again tonight. That was a big part of Chuck's message. So now when we talk about it here in verse 14 and 15, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So think about this in the different stages then. Positional partaking of Christ is the beginning of our assurance. The beginning of our assurance. The first time you and I ever exercised faith is when we placed our faith in Christ and received eternal life. So that's the beginning of our assurance. Hebrews 3.14, Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. 
John 6, 48-56. And so we become a partaker of Christ when we eat His flesh, when we drink His blood. We are partaking of Christ. That, of course, is a metaphor for believing, right? We're not cannibals. We're doing nothing mystical to the bread and the wine when we take communion. But we are memorializing what He did. The reality is we ate Christ, we drank His blood the day we got saved. That was the day of our salvation. Are we clear on this? John 6. Forty-eight through fifty-six. That's a long stretch, but Jesus said, "I am the bread of life." Right before that, He said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life." So there you go. Faith is the beginning of our assurance. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Remember, we enter through the veil by a new and living way, which is what? Which is His flesh. All right. Anyway, they grumble. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus, uh, does He back down? Does He realize, ooh, I'm making waves here, I'm causing problems. I better back off. I better get nicer in my approach. No. He actually doubles down on the metaphor. Oh, you got a problem with eating my flesh? Okay. How about you eat my flesh and drink my blood? Verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I love that. He doesn't back off. He's given it to them, honest and true, straight from the Father. They don't like it? Oh, well. How do you like me now? Right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Anyway, it's about faith. And uh, the metaphor is faith. And so positionally partaking of Christ is the beginning of our assurance. Ultimately, partaking of Christ is the end of our earthly sojourn. That's where we're all headed. That's what we're headed to. Ultimate. So we have ultimate sanctification, ultimate justification, and uh, this morning I'm coining ultimate partaking of Christ. Ultimately, partaking of Christ is the end of our earthly sojourn. And we already saw it back in verse 6, Hebrews 3, 6, holding fast until the end Remember that? That was also an if statement. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. There's the end. That's the crown in our diagram. We can't retire from Christianity until we are face to face with Jesus Christ. There's no retired Christians. Levitical priesthood, they got to retire at age 60, I think. We don't retire. We maintain our priesthood until we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6.11 is a, another to-the-end statement. We desire each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Jesus Christ Himself in John 
is that he loved them to the end. That's a powerful text. He's washing the feet of his knuckleheads, including one unbeliever. Judas is going to betray him and send him to the cross. And he's loving them to the end. We're called to love as Christ loved. How about Romans 6.22? The end. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the end or the outcome, eternal life. There is an end. There is a crown. We are walking from the cross to the crown. Finally, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.8. You're not lacking in any gift, waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you waiting eagerly? I'm waiting eagerly. Oh, that it were today. Waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, physical death or rapture, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this teaching. I thank you for your faithfulness, faithful in saving us, faithful in walking through us, faithful in taking us home. When that day comes, Father, and we don't know, maybe it's today, physical death or rapture, any one of us can be standing in your presence today. All of us could be standing in your presence today. So, Father, keep us faithful, even as you are faithful. I thank you, Father, that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. You look at us, and we're in you, Father. We're in Christ. I thank you for these promises. Thank you for this study. I do continue to pray for the Hagemeyer family, and I pray for our services tonight and all that is said and done. Thank you that we grieve with hope. Thank you that it's an encouragement for us against the deceitfulness of sin and hardness of heart and apostasy. Encourage us on this day, Father. I thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty.